This is Defenders TV Podcast, episode 124, and we're looking at The Punisher. Season 1, episode 3, Kandahar. Welcome back, fellow Defenders. This is Chris from Defenders TV Podcast, and we are on episode 124. And that can only mean one thing. We're looking at The Punisher, season one, episode three, Kandahar. I want your host, Derek. Hi, I'm Naked and Tightered Chair. I'm one of your other hosts, John. <laughs> and before anyone else asks, no, I'm not naked either. I'm just, I'm, I'm wearing at least a slip. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm doing it for charity. Oh, uh, was Micro doing it for charity? Oh, no, he, he most certainly wasn't. But yes, no, I am recording live naked on air um, as podcast, John. Yeah. Aren't you happy this isn't a video podcast? Maybe you're happy that yeah. Maybe you're not happy that it's a video podcast. But welcome back, to fellow defenders. Great to be here for episode three of our Punisher coverage. Definitely, yeah. Um, this is my favorite episode so far. Actually, uh, really enjoyed it. Yep, it was great to see the Marvel abs back on the show. I think Micro uh, was going deep undercover with his Marvel abs, like like I do. I, I was kind of the same. I was like, oh, well, I always envisioned Micro as a big chubby guy. I don't know why. Okay. I have this like Cheetos hacker where he's just like got crumbs <laughs> in his beard and he's kind of like just leaning back. That kind yeah. of South Park look of a hacker. And he's just like, yeah, so when okay. they changed, when I yeah. saw this as being micro, I was like, hmm. But then they didn't give him up. So I'm like, okay, it's fine. He, he's, yeah. he, he's healthy enough that he can run a few blocks, but he's not healthy enough to get abs. I, I respect it. Yeah. Well, you know, as a hacker, they did give him a beard and scraggly hair that looks unwashed for about a year. So, yeah, I think they've got it about right. A different type yes. of standard hacker that we get here instead but of the same I still want yeah. the Johnny Lee yes. Miller uh, and Angelina Jolie version of hackers from hackers. Come on, that was, that was brilliant. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> oh, fellow yes. defenders, let's Classic. jump on with it. If you're joining us for the first time, why? But more importantly, get over to our Facebook group at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Defenders TV podcast, where we are discussing in deep, deep spoiler filled posts that our lovely host Derek puts up every episode of this season. But also you can send us your own feedback and we can hear your dulcet tones on the podcast by sending your voicemails through the website at DefendersTVPodcast.com. Uh, and on the left-hand side, if I believe right? I think it's the right-hand side. Okay, well, it, then it's even better, because that's the right, right, right-hand right side. You can click a button and leave us <laughs> a short piece of feedback, and we can slot you into this episode. Or actually slot you into the next episode. Um, and more importantly, if you just want to do some written feedback and don't want to put it up on the Facebook group, you can send your, us your thoughts via email at... Feedback at DefendersTVPodcast.com 
Yeah, we've been getting some feedback in so far now that the episodes have aired on Netflix. Uh, where we were recording in advance, it's great to hear some kind of feedback from the audience that's watching this. So thanks so much for that feedback so far. We'll discuss it later on in the yes. podcast. Yes. Um, gentlemen, I'm a, a, a bit like micro. I'm itching to move. Um, so why don't we jump into this one? Because I think it's going to be a good episode. Derek, would mm-hmm. you like to take us through the episode details? Yeah, episode three of The Punisher was written by Steve Lightfoot again. So he's written three episodes back to back. This seems quite similar to um, to the way the Defenders, where they gave each episode to the main writers of the show. It's quite cool that he gets the third episode again. Um, the episode's directed by Andy Goddard. He's directed Iron Fist, episode 12, at Bar the Big Boss, did Daredevil season two, episode six, Regrets Only, and the Luke Cage episode seven, Manifest. So lots of experience in the world of the Defenders. John, do you want to tell us what they gave us with your synopsis for the episode? Sure. Naked and tied to a chair, David Lieberman quickly realizes that he's underestimated Frank Castle, but he's planned for this. At regular periods of time, Micro has to disable alarms and bombs around his base of operations, so Frank will have to keep him alive. Meanwhile, Russo continues to support the veterans program as Private Lewis Walcott's personal situation begins to deteriorate. However, Russo is unaware that Kurt knows more about Frank than he's letting on as they head off to raise a glass to Frank at his gravestone on his birthday. New information undercovered by Stein on Carson Wolf adds unsettling details to the investigation into his murder. As Dina tries to keep this evidence under wraps, she must begin to work with her colleague and make a choice on who to trust at Homeland Security. Back at the Faraday cage, while captive, David shares why he is hiding. Frank, though, is still sceptical about his story. However, as their separate stories begin to converge on the events in Kandahar, David as an NSA analyst sifting through video files, and Frank as a member of an elite unit enforcing Operation Cerberus, they realize that they must work together to beat those nameless figures who have brought them misery and misfortune. The missile must be guided, but it comes with a catch. There is to be no court bullshit. They must all die. They all must die. Yes, what a what a line from Frank. I like that it's followed by Micro saying, "I can live with that." Um, nice little uh, nice little play from Micro there. <laughs> yeah, nice touch. I really like that this was a different type of ending for Netflix. Like it wasn't a cliffhanger to a degree. It wasn't what is happening next. You know what's going to happen next. You get your authentic Punisher. Everyone must die. They need to pay for their crimes. Based on the pre- on the episode, you're kind of expecting Micro, David Lieberman, to not not say, I can live with that. Right. Okay. Um, but it was an interesting ending. I think he needs to find his way back to his family. I think he'll do anything for that. Uh, I think that's where, where it comes from. It, it is an interesting episode. We'll get, get into our points in a minute, but it is an interesting episode. This kind of moment has happened in the Punisher movies that Micro has been involved in or that his support person has been involved in. And it's something that takes about two minutes. It's where Micro goes, hey, I'm a computer guy and have access to loads of information that you need to complete your mission, Frank. And Frank goes, cool, <laughs> get me some guns. And then they go off and uh, and complete the mission, basically. Um, so it's kind of cool that they took a full episode to get these two characters together because Frank doesn't trust anybody. Why would he trust Micro? Uh, why would he trust this guy that's been following him and and spying on him for so long why would he set up with him so you do need to have this moment where they take some time out and go right these two characters are on the same side and they're eventually going to come to a point where uh, they are going to work together to take down this 
new evil organization or evil evil situation, I suppose. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, I think it's time we jump off with our top five points for this episode. If you're new to the show, the way that we uh, cover each episode is that we take our combined top five biggest five moments that stood out to us from this episode. So straight at it, let's look at the point number one, naked but protected. Mm-hmm. I love this concept of Michael. Like, obviously, he's lived in this place for a year, expecting some form of attack, expecting that somebody will come at him. I love this idea that he has so many little protections in place. You know, the the alarm that has to be turned off every hour, the camera that he has set up to film if anybody does attack him, and then the injection in his pen, having all those set up together that in case he ever gets attacked, he's able to use them. I think that's a great concept. No, I, I really like this, um, especially when, towards the end when we find out why he did it, why he has the alarm, why he has a camera, why he has the injection, or how he has the injection and plans to use it. Basically, to a point, twisting what Frank says at the beginning of this episode, where he, we have Frank going, it tortures not about um, the pain. It's not about the pain at all. It's about the breaking repetition. Mm-hmm. It's the breaking constant that you you never know what's going to happen. That tension breaks the man, not the actual pain. Exactly. It's all about time. And that was exactly that was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I um I loved uh, these these scenes and the scenes that spun off in in relation to Kandahar as well uh from the interaction of these two because um I I just really liked how they took their time on this that uh, Frank wasn't going to trust Micro straight off the bat. Mm-hmm. He um, he was suspicious of him. In fact, I think he probably thinks that he is somehow working with uh, the the people who were responsible for his predicament. And I, I really liked that. I, I liked how the torture concept, you know, he's naked, you know, I, I'm here tied butt naked to a chair. He's being hit. He's having buckets of water thrown over him. Having said that, though, I like the way then that Micro turns the tables on, on Frank, that all these little things, you know, using the pen to, to key in the, the password, the, the interruption of having to do that to disable the bomb, that it's all hardwired in by retinal scan, all of this kind of thing, that ultimately these little details um, actually help him to reverse the situation and, and mm-hmm. get uh, Frank knocked out by the lead poisoning from his uh, his clicker pencil um, <laughs> or whatever it was that was in there. Um, I, I really enjoyed that. I'm, I don't know The Punisher and I don't know Micro that well as a comic series, uh, especially for Micro. Um, he, he's a character I don't know a lot about at all. And I'm really enjoying getting to know this character um however true or untrue to the comic books he he might be um i'm really enjoying getting uh, to know this character definitely and i think the other thing i really enjoy um about this uh, naked but protracted um s- event is really that it's micro challenges uh frank all the way through this um as well you know he he's not willing to necessarily uh, back down or give up certain details and um, even when you get the first siren clicking in you know lost style with the the countdown of two minutes and you mm-hmm. know frank kind of thinks this is all 
um, a bit of a ruse really sits back and he's there going, no, this really isn't, you know, and eventually that, that pans out, but you know, he challenges him. He sort of niggles at him by, by not giving out up details, sticking to his guns or his plan of being able to sort of reverse the tables. You know, I, I, it's difficult to know how to say this, but it's kind of Frank feels that he's the only one that's been wronged here mm-hmm. because Micro still has his family alive and that the kind of work that he had to do as a Marine um, means that his pain is greater than Micro's. And I, I like the way that Micro turned that around to say we were both doing our jobs you were following orders and i was doing my job they were both different aspects of war one was more bloody absolutely but the other was just as important and has left him scarred and in uh, a predicament that frank also can relate to yeah, yeah. so i really like that about this that this whole naked but protected interrogation I yeah think. like it, it is really interesting frank effectively is giving micro no respect because his family's still alive he's basically saying you still have them you haven't lost anything but micro knows if he puts his head out the door if he goes anywhere near his wife and kids again they are dead so he will be in exactly the same situation as frank it's like he's on the cliff before what's happened to frank has ha- happens to him it's like as if he's just stopped himself and kept his family alive, which Frank couldn't do. It could be that point that, you know, through his actions, he has kept his family yeah. alive. Uh, and there's a bit of resentment there. Yeah. But I like how it unfolds through the different sort of story arcs that come from this interrogation um, at Micro's base that, um, you know, that there is an element of grudging re- uh, respect that comes uh, between the two of them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Chris? I, I feel what they're doing is um, they're trying to paint David and Frank as being two sides of quite a, a similar coin in that they both are kind of saying that they've done nothing wrong. They were just following their rules, doing what they were told to do, mm-hmm. and that has landed them in this um, place where the first has made Frank's uh, family die. Mm-hmm. And in the, in this case for Micro, it's made him die. And then the second is that they are now forced to basically go after these people. And I don't know. I think what I'm trying to get at is what I feel that they're trying to do is make Micro and Frank just two, two versions of a Punisher. One using his hacking skills, one using his fighting skills to, to exact their element of revenge and i don't think that's right i think that they're spurred on by a different emotional kind of strengths and different emotional kind of uh spurs if you i think they're pushing the two of them towards each other as the two people that are the only two people in this world that could work together against the common enemy it's like my enemy's enemy is my friend kind of idea but again, I do feel the reason why Frank gives Micro so little respect here is because if Frank had been in that situation and it's either run or kill the people that are after you, Frank wouldn't have been standing there saying, put down the gun, Wolf. He would have been running at Wolf to try and break his neck. Um, 
that's Frank. He would be, he would have been going all violence at the people that are trying to kill him or kill his family. Micro's not that kind of person because he doesn't have that kind of training. So uh, I don't I don't think yeah. there will ever be a moment where Micro's going to be in a position. Maybe there will later on in the season where he'll be in a position where he'll be able to use violence to protect his family. Um, but I don't think he has that training. It's not the first thing that comes up for him. Yeah, I I think there's an element where they're similar to the extent that they've, in a sense been wronged in some way um by the people who they work for mm-hmm. um to differing degrees and i th- like obviously i think we'll come to that in, in one of our later points um but i think for me initially from this it is that they are two very different people i think micro season out to be able to get back to his family by using Frank, utilizing mm-hmm. Frank. I don't know how much he sees Frank as a friend. He's always said he just wants to talk to him and effectively develop maybe this kind of working relationship to help his situation. Yeah. But I suppose we might get an idea of that as it goes on. But for me as well, and I think again, I'm, likely to touch on this through a number of the other points is that I think they are working to make Frank quite a sympathetic character but when set against Micro that character does not come across as very sympathetic to me Um yes you know things have happened that are bad but for me Micro's story almost feels more tragic to mm-hmm. some extent yeah. Um he's dead and ultimately his family is dead but he watches them every day. I think it's going to be very difficult to make Frank a sympathetic character. You're right. They're, they're doing their best to at least put you in his shoes and give you a concept of what's, why he's been wronged or how he's been wronged over, over his life. But let's go on to the origin of Micro that gives us a bit more information about Micro and about, about him as a character and probably feeds very quickly into this, uh, into this point. Cause this point, the naked protected is the entire episode of the show. So, but just before we do, uh, the one thing I will say, and then we can come back to it later, is Derek. You said there's no one else who could read the enemy of my enemy kind of thing. Unfortunately, Frank has two very good, highly trained friends who both said that they would do anything for him. Billy mm-hmm. and Curtis. Yeah, like that. They they are highly trained individuals as bad as Frank. And we learn about some of that today. Yeah, so let's come back to that later on because there's a reason. There's a reason why they're not, why he didn't go to them, uh, which we can talk about in, in our later point. Exactly. So case point number two is the origin of Micro. Yeah, his, his story and how he became, or how he got to the point that he's in. And effectively, he says he was a very boring lackey sitting in an office receiving video files that he was going through, uh, working in Kandahar, working in Af- Afghanistan. Um, intelligence, which he, which he says is a misnomer because intelligence could come from a kid on the street telling you what you wanted to hear and just because they wanted the money for food for their family. So how can you trust anything that's coming to you? Uh, and he gets sent the video of the death of Ahmed Zubair, uh, which is the investigation that Dan is going through as well um, over in Homeland Security. So quite cool that they've completely tied these two together now that we get the story and the Frank has this side of the story. So that's that's definitely quite interesting. But um Interesting that everything that's happening to Micro is because he received this anonymous file and didn't know what to do with it. He used his hacking skills to try and protect himself. As we see in this episode, he sends the file off um, securely, but it's still traced back to him by, as we see in the episode, Wolf, uh, who does return for episode three, despite his death in episode two. Yes, I really enjoyed this. I, I, I liked the very 20th century 
origin, if you will, of a cyber hacker who has come from the CIA. It was, I really enjoyed it. The emotional talk he was having with his wife over the, the kitchen table, which is where she's like, you need to run this up the chain. And he's like, no, I need to do, like, they'll do nothing. They'll just bury it. I need to do it myself. And I, I, I'm torn. Okay. I can see both sides of this mm-hmm. coin. I'm also very much of David. He made his bed. Like, I think there's an element of that, yeah. which is he needs, he understands that he, to a degree, did this. He caused all this. He caused himself to have to go on the run. He caused himself to, in theory, die. Um, because he chose to send this video file over FTP to Dana. Right, okay. Um, yeah, so the choice here... Is so that. we know which side you're on in uh, the Allies versus the Axis powers. Yes, bury it. Bury it. Don't send it. <laughs> Don't send it on. Exactly. I, I do like that he has that conversation with his wife where he's saying, I'm going to do this security. I'm going to protect the family and do this security. I need it to go up the chain. His wife is saying that it needs to go up the chain as well, but he's saying, I'm going to do it securely so that it will protect the family. And she goes, you're just looking for a way out. You're looking for somebody else to approve of your decision. It needs to be your decision, and whichever your decision you make i'll support you not knowing that it's going to lead to her being left alone for a year um or for this year so far and her thinking that her husband's dead now as well so um so yeah i lo- i actually like that interplay between the two of those characters because he is looking for someone to support him he's looking for someone to support him in the decision that effectively if he'd gone up the chain and giving it to the wrong person he does believe his entire family would be dead already so he's made the decision to do it securely and hide it away so that He's in hiding, and it took them a bit longer to find him, I think, is the point, uh, than it would have if he'd just gone straight to his boss or the next boss. But it's kind of interesting. I like. I really like the origin of Micro here. I I had a feeling of a lot of sympathy for him about, you know, he makes the point that he says, it's the reason why I'm not in Silicon Valley. I wanted to do it for maybe social, moral, ethical reasons, Mm -hmm. put his skills to that rather than something else. Maybe he believed in the cause. And so um, it's interesting then that he receives this footage, this intelligence footage, Mm -hmm. which then you can't pass up the chain within your organization. It's really... I, I find that a little odd, I have to say. Um, but he does it securely, and I presume he does that because it's American soldiers uh, in the footage yeah. executing um, a guy. But, like, so my point being is that he had no idea that necessarily by following up on the job that he was given, he would... Um, ultimately be tracked down by Carson Wolf and shot yeah. in the sense that he didn't release it to the public. He didn't release it to the papers. He was simply moving it up the chain of line management. Ultimately, he's sending that to Dina. Um, that's the email address that he puts in on the secure server. Right. So maybe he is actually yeah. sending it outside of the organization, but still to a, a U.S. Empl- you know, government employee yeah. in Homeland Security. So it, it's kind of an interesting um, situation to be in. But I don't think for one moment that he thought it would necessarily lead to him being chased in the street by Carson Wolf and then shot. And you can see that actually, if it 
hadn't been totally illegal because we, we find out eventually that it was never Senate sanctioned, then more than likely he certainly wouldn't have been shot, but it's not saying he might not have lost his job from what he did, but you know, this is, this has kind of got echoes of Abu Ghraib uh, jail in Iraq after the Iraqi war. It, it's kind of a similar kind of thing. Yeah. And um, were images of, well, that was prisoner abuse. This is certainly uh, worse than that to the extent that, you know, the person ends up being shot in the head. Mm-hmm. But I like the way this involves Micro in the world of Frank Castle. Um, and I, I like that he discusses his options with his wife. Yeah. Um, and then even when he looks in, in the car and sees the armed um, response team moving through the traffic jam in New York, just how he gets out of the car and, and that chase. And I think like with his wife following him up, I thought that was really, I just thought it was a really nice scene where she sees him shot and she's screaming on in the background. They don't focus on her, but she, you know, the, the actress there is really playing it so well. Yeah. Um, and of course we see that Wolf is just a lying piece of shit, really, um, saying that he's got a gun, you know, and just taking him out. Saved yeah. by a bit of tech though, of course, which, what else would it he be saved by? Well, absolutely. And to your point, John, like effectively, Micro is saying that he feels like a soldier just because he's living at home and just because he's talking to his wife. He's a soldier. He works every day in Afghan intelligence. So what he's trying to find out is things that will help the Americans take down the Afghanis, take down the Taliban, take down the organizations that they're against in Afghanistan. What happens here is he receives a piece of very highly sensitive data about the Americans. So that's what, where the problem is. If you have a problem in your armed forces unit with your captain or with somebody that's beside you, it's just as sensitive to report that piece of information to your upper, to your higher ups. If you receive a piece of information about the Afghanistan army or about, uh, or about the other attacking forces that is sensitive about them, of course you report that to your manager and the people above you because that's going to be useful to you in a war against your opposing forces. But if you receive something sensitive about your own internal army, nobody wants you to report that. So that's the quandary that he's in. He feels like he's a soldier for the Americans and he's just found out something bad about the Americans. And oh no, they are going to make me pay for finding this out effectively. Well, we still don't know who sent it to him. Mm-hmm. Exactly. There's an interesting part there. Yeah, but isn't it also just kind of like a feed? Isn't isn't it kind of like they're scanning for information? He said he he said he received it from someone, um. So it wasn't just the usual because yeah. he talks about how he usually just gets he gets lots of stuff sent mm-hmm. to him and he still has to go through it. He said this was sent in a different way. Yeah, no, that degree. that's a good point. What's the back end of this? Who has sent him? Uh, that is yeah, good good catch there, Chris. Definitely because yeah, I just thought that was on kind of sort of a stream of communications that they're kind of picking up, whether it be verbal, audio, um, digital, mm. uh, and and that kind of stuff. So it could be files uh, or whatever. Right. So, uh, yeah, okay. And as well, to your point, not only is it about his, his own side, this intelligence, mm-hmm. but actually it's intelligence that is sanctioned, but, you know, officially not sanctioned, or it is completely illegal activity within the army or through some other organization. So yeah, who is, who or which organization sanctioned 
and this operation uh, Cerberus. Uh, exactly. It'd be very interesting to find that out. Um, let's go on to Dinah, um, the other character in the episode. Obviously, she's uh, she's been following through here. She's now taking over from Wolf because nobody else is going to be able to do the job. She's in the job, what, about a week uh, now? Her boss has been murdered, and now she's going to hopefully be taking on the position. I love that discussion that she has with her mother. There you go, Chris. Mother is back in the show. Uh, I knew she was coming back. Uh, it's quite cool, quite cool. I love their conversation where Dinah's effectively telling her mother, um, this isn't me being... Uh, what you think I am, the best word to describe me is arrogance. I'm arrogant. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think anybody could do the job as well as I can. That's why I'm going to get this position. I love that moment from her. Um, you can tell she uh, she really does feel that she's the right person for this role. I think that's really cool. Uh, and then we have the opposing argument given to her by Sam, yeah. um, who is effectively suddenly saying to her that you're not treating me like a partner anymore. You're now treating me like you're my boss already. Um, quite interesting. Yeah, I liked Sam Stein in this. I was like, go Sam. Um, you know, rightly put, he comes with the information. She tells him to sit on it, but gives him no credit for it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, why should I bother? What, um, have you ever done in the short term that you've been here that has meant that I would be loyal to you? Why should I sit on this? This is only because of some kind of, you know, as far as he's concerned, some kind of, uh, pipe dream investigation that she's still trying to pursue, even though she's been told not to. Um, and I, I like that he stood up to her, um, here. And I like, um, just the fact that, um, through the conversation between Dina and her mother, uh, the night before, they kind of clicked what her mother was saying that, you know, you do need to let people in. Um, you do need some, help you know you're not an island no man or woman is an island yeah um on their own and i i like that that fed into then dina's response uh to like say look hold on a second um like i love the way she even says hold on a second stein like calling him by his surname and then like goes no sam you know it's maybe she's just not very social skills orientated I think she's all about the job, yeah. To a degree, I'm not enjoying this story arc. Dinah seems very much like... I love her mother. The character is fantastic. I love Dinah. The character is fantastic. I think it's the deadpan arrogance. And I suppose, actually, this is what they probably wanted. It, it's so grating. I, I don't like the, the way the, the arc is going. I'm hoping it will be led more into, uh, the Frank Castle micro. Like, we know they're going to play odds and ends at some Absolutely. point in this season. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to get to that because that's going to then make her stop just constantly obsessing over Kandahar and what happened there and her partner. And they're bringing up the same plots consistently every episode. I don't, I know it will come. I'm hoping it will come sooner rather than later, but it's just overall. I'm a bit like they could have done her three, three episode arc so far in the space of about 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Uh, They could have cut the, the scenes down and, quite easily spread them or just put them into this episode. Like, we didn't need to see this ever-evolving piece on her. She's going to find out how dirty Wolf is, and it's going to get worse. Um, so I'm interested to see how far down the rabbit hole she'll go. 
Yeah. If you understand yeah. what I mean. In other words, in order to clean the dirt from this side of the organization, she's going to have to get dirty herself. Yeah. I kind of agree with you to some extent. I think um I would actually have liked to have seen more on, on Dina and and Sam to really begin to invest because like what I've seen of them, I kind of like the dynamic. I wouldn't like to necessarily work with her if that's how she treats her co-employees. But I think, um, I think we still need to see more about her, uh, and why she's so invested. For example, with, um, Ahmed Zubair, for example, I think, uh, you know, why she's really got her claws into this and won't let it go. Um, I, you know, the relationship between her and Sam and I suppose, just that it does need to develop some more. Um, interesting theory. So Micro sent it to Dina and then he was chased down. Now we could say that it's been leaked or someone intercepted that communication mm-hmm. by email or the record file of that. But again, I'm still there wondering, are we not being shown much about Dina other than this obsessive look at this case other than um, she could be a bad person, maybe a maybe. bad guy, uh, a bad gal. Um, here and that she's the one that then tipped off the organization to send Carson Wolf. So actually, there's like seven degrees of separation between her and Carson that they don't know that they're working on it. That's what I'm still. That's my weird, wacky theory still is that she is one of the big bads. But I suspect it won't pan out, as I said before. But still, at this moment in time, I'm basing that on the fact that the only person that we know Micro sent it to is to her. It's a weird one. Yeah, she did mention to Ben in a previous episode that she received the she received a disc of it, but the disc was stolen. Is what she says. So it feels like what Micro sending her the digital copy of it is the second time she's received the file. Is what it sounds like almost. Um. Or at least the second time the file's sent to her. Um, but she, maybe she didn't receive the file. Maybe it was intercepted, uh, b- before it got to her. I honestly think the only reason that these two characters are in this particular episode is just to keep their side of the story alive. It's usually important that they repeat the fact that Wolf was the head of the organization and he's gone now and he was the one that killed Micro. Yeah. So you have to tie those, bi- those bits in together. Um, Dina's hugely important in the series. She's the legalized side of what's going on with the Punisher. So she's trying to take this operation down from one side and he's trying to take it down from the other side. So, uh, so while they may not have had a huge amount of scenes, I think it's only about two minutes of the entire episode. I do think it's interesting to see that a week back from Afghanistan, she's now in charge of Homeland Security office or this, yeah, this office of Homeland Security. Quite interesting. Uh, will we get on to the main point of the episode? Because this is our big moment. We've been talking about Kandahar since back in Daredevil season two. Um, what happened in Kandahar? doesn't really stay in Kandahar, does it? Operation Service. Lots and lots of new information about what actually happened uh, to Frank in the war. We heard about it a little bit um, back in Season 2 of Daredevil when he talked about um, his his leader. But we didn't really hear anything about this Agent Orange and his type of leadership. The whole concept of, um, I point, you shoot. Um, I, li- I like that Frank's response to him when he starts taking over the operation is, as long as it's sanctioned by by the government... I'll do it. As long as it's gotten approval of, of the government, I'll do it. 
And Agent Orange's response is, I'm the only authority you need. So quite an interesting idea. We do find out at the end of the episode that it's not sanctioned. But I like that Frank at least is looking for justification for what he does. He is he is a weapon to be used by America, by the, the United Forces, as long as it's been approved by the right people, effectively. I like that they've put that into Punisher's character, that he does need the justification. He's not just someone that will go out and blow things up. He's saying... I'm in the army. I will do what my superiors tell me what to do as long as it's approved. Yeah. Um, like that point. One other thing about, about this operation. I do like that it fixes a continuity problem in all of the iterations of Frank. Various times he's been members of various different military outfits in here. As it gets set up, as Schoonover meets them all, he effectively says, I don't care what army force you were in before. You're the best at what you did in those forces. Now you're forming one central force that is uh, this operation. So it's a great way to tie up that idea of whether Frank was a Marine or a or um, an undercover operative or whether he was in the SEALs, maybe. You know, there's loads of different things that are out there. So a nice way to tie them all up together and go, I don't care where you're from. It could be from any unit. We've got the best of the best here and they form Operation Service. Yeah, I loved how this really exposed the the filth of war to be honest um i really did i mean a question straight off the bat um you know we've seen it a few times now this execution of ahmed zubair mm-hmm. but to me the the man who had the the balaclava on that pulled the trigger it looked like frank's eyes so i have a question yeah. to you to you both i do th- you or do you not think it's frank that pulls the trigger here and um, that he thinks he is justified in this execution because he has been told that he's got uh, the sanction of the senate in the us yeah, I think only after watching it the second or maybe even the third time I watched it, I thought it was skewing over many, many times um, as Orange points to him and goes, now pull the trigger. But that scene directly afterwards when Frank wakes up from the dream of his wife being killed and has the killer pulling back the mask to reveal Frank's face, you're absolutely supposed to connect the two yeah. images. And I just wasn't connecting it the first couple of times. I think it was possibly because we were watching the, the screener versions on a laptop and now we've been able to watch it on a television. So it's much bigger on the big screen. So we've been able to actually compare the two. And I definitely think it's Frank. And it relates back to Agent Orange's um, quote of, I point, you, you shoot. shoot. Exactly. And that's exactly what happens in that scene. Yeah, yeah. So, first of all, yes, I, similar to you guys while watching the screeners, I never made that right. connection. No, me, me yeah. neither. Now I do. Yeah. Now I do. Yeah, it's I fine. think I had it written in the notes, Frank does not pull the trigger. <laughs> and then I, and then I, went, I went to yeah. just change it to Frank pulls the trigger, yeah. The bit I am slightly perturbed about is in the in this flash larger flashback scene, we hear um in Farsi, I'm assuming. Um I think it's Farsi. He the, the prisoner does say, I'm a policeman, don't do mm-hmm. this. One of the men had to know or speak Farsi. Frank probably has to speak Farsi after being in Afghanistan for two plus years. Um I'm assuming someone else outside of Agent Iron would have heard this. That's the bit. There's definitely somebody that says to Agent Orange, what did he say? And he says, nothing useful is his response. So I don't think these guys yes. know uh, what he's saying. Okay. Who's filming this? <laughs> okay. How do we put this? Mm-hmm. Um, there is one gentleman filming this and there's... So we need to know, we need to connect that dot to who, who the person who leaks the mm-hmm. video. 
So once we know who filmed it, we can probably assume we're going to know who has the terrible camera skills and who's the one who gives the video away. Two, I don't like the idea that no one else in that room speaks Farsi okay. or what the actual language. I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, guys. Um, please let me know uh, in our uh, spoiler notes in on Facebook group or just send us feedback into the next episode. Let me know. I'm assuming it's Farsi. I'm probably wrong. Um, just because uh, Dinah says it in this episode. She yeah. said she spoke all the different I languages. think it's Farsi, definitely. Well, the one thing I would say is, I think from a military unit, I wouldn't expect them to necessarily know the language in their the countries of combat that they're going into, necessarily. And normally, the, within the units, they would have assigned an interpreter mm-hmm. where uh, they would understand what was being said. Okay, I, I get what you say, that over time, you might learn things like, we surrender, or please and thank you. Yeah. But or maybe, don't shoot yeah. yeah, or don't shoot. Um, but that's kind of that usual, you know, the universal sign of hands up coming and walking out. It's true. No, or the white flag, you know, it, it's that kind of universal sign to break any differences in, in language. So I, I, would be of the view that I wouldn't necessarily expect the members that have been taken from these different units to necessarily know the local language, especially Afghan. Yeah, you know, one of the the the, the dialects and languages of, of Afghanistan. Um, and I would assume it's yeah, Agent Orange. So they would just see him as being the person from the CIA who has. The interrogation tricks, um, as well as um, the the language skills. Yep. But yep. I know what you're saying. You wonder, in terms of the recording, is that simply to show that the job has been done to whoever is effectively sanctioning or backing this? Or I was wondering, is it a secret camera? I mean, where is this being done? It looks like a, a basement in someone's house. I would think they would be trying to keep this away from the general population, Absolutely. but having said that, when they're burying um, the the guy they've just shot and Frank's taking out the bullet to so that there's no direct evidence there, um, it looks like it's next to a house, so maybe it's the guy's house. So I, I was thinking, did he know that this was happening? Did he know that he had stumbled into something in the same way that Micro did to raise the heckles on the back of his... Uh, neck, you know, it is, there's something here that it's maybe a, f- a secret footage, which I, then I, it comes across Michael's desk, but I kind of took it as a reference to the deaths of Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden. There was a feed of both of those secret forces units going in and killing both of those leaders. Um, the reason for that is because somebody has to confirm that it is a confirmed kill. Um, a lot of these operations taking place in dark places and caves in homes with no electricity during war-torn times. If you have camera footage on it, you can, you can look over the camera footage afterwards and go, okay, yes, you definitely got your target. So Agent Orange explains that this guy is a target, that they're going to take him out. So I think this is a, a confirmation video that they did what they did. Um, for whoever it is that's supposed to do that. Now, we do hear, obviously, as we've said a, a number of times, that this is an unsanctioned mission, but it would make sense that the army officers that were there were recording it like they would if it was a sanctioned mission because then they don't ca- cotton on to it not being sanctioned, yeah? 
So that's what I think the reason for the full, for the filming is. Uh, we will probably see more about that in the future. You make a very good point, Chris, that uh, obviously the person that filmed it is quite likely the person that may have leaked the footage. But if they gave it back at the end of the day and gave, gave back the footage like they would after every operation, then whoever received that footage could be the person that leaked it as well. So, but, but yeah, quite a, quite a tense and tough scene. But it also leads into the other mission that we see in the episode, uh, where Agent Orange sends the Marines into a, a trap, as Frank uh, quite quickly realizes it is. Uh, this is brutal. This is the Punisher at his absolutely most brutal that we've seen him so far, um, where he's effectively trying to protect his unit from something that he knew was a trap from the minute he heard about it, saying the reason why I know it's a trap is because, well, that's exactly what I would have done if I was in this situation, if I had heard about a Taliban force on American homeland who were in the area this is exactly what I would set up to trap them into a situation where they have no air support, no support from anybody else, and we can gun them down from all sides. So Frank goes on a proper killing spree uh, during this scene. I love how it's filmed. I love the way the camera is moving with him so you can see the bloodlust. You can see the craziness that's going on in his mind as he takes out people left, right, and center uh, as he moves through the room. This is what I think the Punisher's version of those hallway scenes that you would have seen with the martial arts in the previous shows the reason why those played as one shot scenes is because martial arts a beautiful thing to watch it's great to see people using their abilities and dancing and fighting the way they are in those previous shows this is about the brutality of war and it's shot that way it's something that you would see in something like green zone or or like zero dark 30 something like that where it's a much more realistic scene seeing people getting blown up left right and center rather than just being knocked out by a kick to the face um so i think this is their version of that very different obviously from the other defenders shows but uh, but i do really love how the scene was shot and uh, this is the mission as well that we're familiar with from daredevil season two as well because we see uh schoonover's arm uh taken off yes. there. This was the ambush that was mentioned in Daredevil season two. Yeah, I mean, it really, frankly, is proper bloodlust. It, it's pretty, um, difficult to watch, actually. Certainly where he then kind of repeatedly hits, um, one of the other fighters in, in the head with a, with a rock. Yeah. Um, that's fairly difficult to watch. Um, and I was there going, okay, this is more about Frank bloodlust um, and how he is doing it to protect his unit um, in the same way as you know his 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 lust for vengeance uh, in in trying to avenge his family you know because he couldn't protect them so I kind of thought this was pretty difficult to watch actually I thought the the scenes uh, as he moved to kind of take this this particular part of the battlefield was was really well done. I loved the the muzzle fire mm -hmm. um, and how that lit up his face. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, but certainly, uh, I really liked the aftermath of it uh, between him and, and Russo. Um, how Russo is looking to get out, that he has sensed a rotten apple in this barrel, that it's something's not right, he's had enough. This is not war, he says. And, and then how Frank takes this out on Agent Orange, where he's like, you know, who's simply, did we get the kill? Um, 
I don't know what Frank did with that punch, but did he take out his eyeball or explode it? Because he looks like he's just lost his his eye. It's pretty brutal, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, pretty brutal. But rightly so. I suppose that he's trying to take care of his men. Like you know, he's a leader in this army himself, and and Billy Russo are both leaders of sections of this of this force. And after coming back and getting them back alive, not one question over: Are you safe? Are you are you secure? It's did you complete the mission? Did you kill our target? Frank is effectively saying there was never a target there. Like I told you at the beginning of this, it was a trap. It was nothing about the target. So, uh, yeah, so quite a, quite a horrific moment really with that punch to the face of Agent Orange. The overall Frank descends into madness. I like that they called out at the beginning that Frank sees this as a trap. He's questioning it. He's like, why? This is obviously going to go badly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like that we're showing that Frank wasn't just the gun. As Agent Iron said, I point, you shoot. So it wasn't that. He's still, him and Billy, still as the acting officers of their, I'm assuming they were kind of the acting officers, lieutenants. It was lieutenants, wasn't it? The acting lieutenants of their two little bands of the dogs of war. Those two little bands had their alpha males, the, the, the leaders of those packs, and they were brought in and it was like, no, this does, this smells hooky, like this smells yeah. off, this is a bad idea, and they were just told to do it anyway. I loved seeing then Frank descend, descend into this, like the fury, the furious bloodlust Frank, I think as you mm. guys said. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, I, while I want to see that, I think he's begun beyond that. Now. Yes. I think he finds himself in these situations. So, I, I, I would ask you, was the Frank that we saw in Kandahar in that kind of bloodlust scene the same Frank we see in episode one with the, um, hammer? When he goes after the three. Yes, I think the point is that this is always bubbling below the surface. I suppose what, what we see in Kandahar is this is one-man army, Frank. So he takes out a force sent to kill, what's it, 16 members of this team? Um, yeah. And they are the best of yeah. the best. So they've obviously sent quite a large force from the Afghani side versus this team. And what we see here is Frank takes out every single one of them meticulously uh, and gets his force back home. So this is one man army, Frank. This is this is something that he can do because he's got the training and because he's got the skills to do it. And yeah, I think throughout what we saw in episode one and what we will most likely see again if he comes up against the people that put him in this situation and it wasn't the sanctioned government operation is that it's just bubbling under the surface and he's keeping a, a tight lid on it. It's like it's like the Hulk and the anger. Um, you know, it's always there. But he keeps a lid on it. Okay, okay. Because I, I, I'd argue that they were different. I agree with you now. I see where you're coming from. But my argument would be that this was the the first time Frank let go. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the and he he was manic. He he didn't he didn't have the control of this craziness. So now what you're seeing these days is he has more control mm-hmm. of it. So he's kind of he's learned to tap into that that punisher visage. So the example I will give you, right, is where he 
one of the second rooms I think he comes into, he shoves the first guy against yeah. the wall, shoots him, and then pulls him into a hug as he expects he's getting shot multiple times yeah. from behind. Uh, and then he shoots forward. and None of that is controlled. He's just going on pure adrenaline and roll, right? right? But then what we see in episode one, and especially episode at the very end of the episode with the, the gang, is he's that same guy, but it's more controlled, it's more fluid, it's more systematic. He's he's not just unleashing his rage like mm-hmm. Hulk. He's unleashing it at breakpoints. So he's smashing the hammer into knees. He's doing he's he's controlling and directing yeah. the punishment, if he's, you will. He still killed all three of those guys. <laughs> exactly, but he's he killed them with precision. I think that's what I'm trying to say. I know what you mean, but I do think that's just the fact that he's now used it many more times. Um, I don't know whether there's a distinction between the two things. I think he's just used it many more times. You're right. This is probably the first time he's had to be a one-man army versus a trained force and kill them all. And then he does it again during Daredevil Season 2 a few times. And then he did it again at the start of this season, even though he didn't really want to get himself in the situation. But yeah, maybe it's just a more honed weapon because he's more skilled now and has tried it out a bit more and knows how to do these things. But he... It seemed like he knew the right way to go about taking out the armed force, forces in Kandahar. So there was no scene in this where he killed a member of his own team, for example. It's not that type of bloodlust where he just killed everything in sight. He did kill everybody he was supposed to kill, all the targets that he was supposed to kill still. So he may looked like he was losing it, but he wasn't losing it. He he was controlled in his mission as well. So Okay, I, I'll take it on point. Like I, I think where he loses it is at the end where he's putting the rock into the face of Mm -hmm. the Taliban. Uh, I think before that, he's using his environment. He's going methodically. He's firing. and But over time, that has worked himself up to then where he's using the rock repeatedly on the guy's face, um, which thankfully we don't see. And I think in the same way then that on the building site, you've got, you know, he could probably have just pushed them off the building. Um, but he's doing it methodically in terms of his trained army guy. And then the piece de la resistance is he pushes them into the concrete. But I, I think it's a similar kind of stuff there. But also what you're saying, Chris, is, and I think this was really interesting at the end. I wonder, you know, has he always had this? And his wife was some kind of moderating influence on him. I like the fact that Russo at the end, after he's punched Agent Orange, is there, like, as the voice of reason, taking him down from this kind of adrenaline rush or lust, like like we've said, um, pulls him back to say, you know, get a grip, Frank, and, you know, I can't do this anymore. You shouldn't be doing this either, you know. Um, and it looks like he surprises Frank by saying that he's asked for a transfer out, but he turns to him and says, you should too. So maybe the year or, or however long it's been of him effectively judge, jury, executioner, um, in that sense has started to, as you say, Chris, this is the first moment where he feels the same thing as he did when he went after the people who killed his family. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe he's realizing he's had enough. Yeah. yeah, okay, I can, I can see that. So, gentlemen, I think start we start wrapping up with our fifth and final point. Um, all right, everyone, as one, 
Happy birthday, Happy birthday to, to you. you. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday to you. There you go. Happy birthday, dear Frank. Frank. Happy birthday to you. Woo! <laughs> you look like an elephant and he smells like one too. Yeah, I said, I said we'd get back to this point later, but in this episode we really start to see that Billy Russo and Kurt are friends. Mm-hmm. They, yeah. they, they, and they actually, um, although I thought it was going to be something stranger, I thought that, well, the way it was said is like, are we still on for tonight? I mm-hmm. was like, oh, Billy's like doing heists and it's all bad. He's pulling Kurt into it. Like, no, it was really nice. They went to Frank's grave to share a drink. Yeah. Uh, although Kurt nearly lands his foot in it, like at least twice. And Billy, Billy starts questioning. I can see, you can see the, the wheels, cogs moving in Billy's mind. Right, right. The fact that Kurt knows that Frank is still alive. Yeah, it's quite, quite an interesting little dichotomy between the two of them here. Billy and Kurt obviously had many dealings with uh, Frank in the past. We see in the flashbacks that, that Billy Russo is a very good friend of Frank's while they're in the army in the same force, effectively. And we also see here Billy is supporting the, um, the veteran support group that Kurt is running. He's the one that's, that's bankrolling it. He's paying for all the accommodations and all, all the uh, rent effectively for, for this group. So yeah, he's Billy, keeping them in soup and coffee. That's right. Yes. So Billy does seem to be a pretty good guy here. Um, setting up this group and, and, uh, and supporting it. Yeah. Uh, I was there kind of going, you know, this is really still pushing the idea that he's a good guy. He supports the veterans group. Him and Kurt have obviously done this before, you know, going to Frank's grave to, to honor him on his, on his birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, share a drink, um, which I think was whiskey again, actually, but I, I didn't catch the, the brand. Yeah. I couldn't do a whiskey watch this time. Sorry, folks. Um, but yeah, you know, it's really still pushing this idea that Russo is a good guy. I know we were kind of talking about in the last episode whether, you know, is he a good guy? Is he really a good guy? Or is this just kind of that? obvious cover where he's kind of slightly smarmy good guy and and eventually will turn out to be a pretty bad guy um but here certainly he looks pretty genuine he's doing good deeds good stuff and actually you know it's it's kurt though who's going into um the, this tradition of them going to frank's grave with a secret because he knows that he's still alive yeah um and i, I think that's kind of an, an interesting just an interesting little thing between um this threesome of former army vets here now you know is there a reason why frank hasn't brought russo into the you know the the circle of trust so to speak um you know why is it that he's kept him at at bay and not gone to him like he's done with kurt so um you know these are kind of little things that you start to go okay this will be interesting to find out yeah I, i really think that it started to add some meat to the bone of these characters and i'm really enjoying it and i have to say i i'm enjoying russo's character here definitely yeah 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 so um this is kind of where i wanted to get get to and i think i spoke about it briefly at the beginning of the show something has happened to the point where and and has just deteriorated the relationship between billy and frank because we now know that billy is as badass as frank like they were both in the dogs of war together yeah and they were the best of the best kurt was not so Kurt served with them elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, he wasn't in the dogs of war. Yeah, yeah. So the question arises, why did Frank not come to Billy and ask for help when he was trying to take down some of these people? Mm-hmm. 
So when you have two friends, one of which who was in Operation Cerberus with you and the other who you know served well with you, why do you not go to these people? Why do you not ask for help? And I want to know that story. Well, we know, we know he definitely has, has gone to Curse um, recently with his help to get Micra. Um, so we know he's trust, he trusts Curse. Probably not for a military operation now that he's lost his leg and may not be able to assist him in the in those type of operations in the past. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting about Billy as to why what did happen between those two characters and, and why Frank wouldn't trust him. Yeah, and I, I like that dichotomy now, which is you're being presented with Billy Russo, the stand-up, clear-headed um, gentleman. Mm. Yeah, like he's the guy who pulls Frank down got him down and made him see sense about leaving. Yeah. He's the he's the guy who is has made it when he came back. Exactly. He's yeah. built Anvil. He's uh he's covering this vets center bill. Like I thought there was something hokey when he first pulls out the check. And no, it's just him being good. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, there is so much more to the story that I want to find out. Yeah. What is the reason Frank doesn't trust him? Definitely. Uh, or, or do we even know that he doesn't trust him? I, it, it's, it is one of those things like, I wonder if it's in the fact that you know, he gets out before Frank did or mm-hmm. something. And there's an element where, you know, there is that moment in that scene after the trap where Russo says, I'm getting out. I've called in a transfer. And, and Frank looks at him to go, but you never told me. Like, it's the first time he's hearing it mm. about it. So I wonder if it, there's something in, in that that has meant that Frank doesn't trust Russo, or is it more than that, as you say? One of the interesting things is that, um, now it's maybe a bit on the nose for, for Bookwatch, but in the tent where they're sharing, uh, the bunks side by side, then Russo is reading The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, who was incidentally, anyway, played by Ben Barnes. He played that character in the film called Dorian Gray. Yes. But obviously that book tells um, and talks of a dark soul that is hid away mm-hmm. uh, from people where the, you know, the aging is going on in another room. Something else is, is happening elsewhere. What he is putting out for public notice is a facade. So even though I think he's a good guy, is is there a double? Was it just a reference to Ben Barnes's previous character, or is it more uh, about it talks of the character uh, Russo, um, Billy Russo, and whether he has locked away somewhere a darker soul than he's willing to show on uh, public? Interesting, yeah, yeah, yeah. I am questioning, and I kind of think might be a good way to start wrapping up, is... So we know Cerberus, Operation Cerberus, is probably the Act 1 villain. Do we think Billy Russo will become his comic book counterpart, to a degree? I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure at all. I think yeah. if, he, if he does become his comic book counterpart, I don't even know if it needs to be in this season. Um, this character seems like he's on the good side. They do make a slight reference to it in this episode, which I thought was quite fun, where, uh, where Frank's asking, does he have any plans when he goes home? And he, he looks at Frank, smiles, rubs his face and goes, well, I wouldn't want to deny people of a good looking guy like myself, effectively. So a nice little nod to the fact that he's not going to be good looking, uh, in the future. So. Yes. Yeah. 
So I'm wondering, is the first arc, first act going to be Frank taking down this, um, same way we got Cottonmouth and Black Mariah? Like, we always do usually get two bad guys Maybe. per season. Maybe. Be interesting. That's it, because, I mean, with Anvil as well, did he, you know, build that up from scratch and, and legit? Or is there something in this company, Anvil, that maybe is slightly more suspicious as well mm-hmm. in terms of how it yes. became so big, maybe so quickly? I don't know. I'm not entirely sure of what the timelines are. are there. Uh, just one other quick thing for me um, as well, just on this point, is I'm really enjoying the the veteran circle here and Lewis, uh, Private Lewis Walcott. Yes. Um, I have to say, I didn't think that this was going to necessarily be some kind of maybe little side story. I don't know how integral it is or whether it's just trying to maintain, um, you know, the, the veteran circle and the element of PTSD. But I really enjoyed the whole aspect of this former Marine feeling betrayed by his country. Um, but offered advice by one of the older veterans that he should take matters into his own hands. And whilst he doesn't do that here in this episode, I don't know about uh, future episodes, but I think the basement scene where he almost shoots his father coming home because of the nightmares that he's reliving in whilst he's asleep and he's got, you know, his comfort gun next to him. I just thought that was really, really good. And I, I think for um this series, I think it's a really important thread through it. Certainly when you link it back to maybe that bloodlust that we were talking about uh, of Frank uh, trying to save the 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 mission after it after the trap has been sprung by the Taliban you know is that just simply the fight for survival to to stay alive in in the heat of of war and, and battle you yeah. know is and I, I i think this is a really nice little kind of subtale going on here uh, with this former marine lewis walcott yeah, I must say I like it as well. I think it's one of those things that they're trying to make a commentary on all of the effects of coming back from war. You know, Frank would have adjusted well if his family were left alive. Now he's taking it to the people that caused that. You've got uh, Billy, who has adjusted very well. He set up his own practice using some other people that were in the army with him. Uh, that's a really well-adjusted guy. You've got uh, Walcott here, who is not adjusting at all to society after coming back. There's no reason other than the experiences that he had in the army coming back into the real world after that is is having the effect on him. And then you've got Kurt, who's effectively saying, well, I went into insurance. What a great sales tool I have here in taking off my leg. You never know what's going to happen to you tomorrow. And he's taking it very positively and turning it into a positive spin on how he can live the rest of his life. So the whole series is about the effects of war on the characters and having a character like Walcott to see the possibly the worst way this can end uh, to me. Of everything that's happened in the series so far, in the three episodes, him almost shooting his father in the head with a gun mistakenly because his father's woken him up out of a out of a nightmare is the scariest thing that could possibly happen to anybody. Having access to a gun underneath your pillow and you being shot by your own son, that's, De- that's a terrible, terrifying moment. Really. De- definitely. I mean, it, it's that idea that Kurt said, I started my second life. Russo seems to have started his second life. Mm-hmm. Walcott and Frank Castle um, haven't. Yes. And Frank Castle wasn't able to um, because of his family's murder. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I think we can move on to the notes section. So has anyone got any 
Any notes? Just a couple of little notes. I like the Anne Margaret joke from Billy Rosso, where he says, "So Anne Margaret isn't coming when they get their new mission." Uh, that's just a reference to when World War Two. They used to send actresses and and uh, people from showbiz over to the army in the in the World War. So these guys aren't getting any relief. They're going off on another mission. I like that little gag there. It's quite good. Yeah, there's also the Marathon Man shit uh, referenced by Micro, which is to the 1970s classic movie. The Marathon Man starring Dustin Hoffman, who uh, tracks Nazis, uh, and he is tracking Laurence Olivier uh, here. But it ultimately ends up in a much deeper, darker uh, place uh, mm-hmm. in, in that classic 70s film. Kind of a nice reference to the kind of things that inspired seemingly this series of The Punisher. It's quite cool. Uh, the poem that's referenced where uh, ours is not to question why, ours is to, but to do and die, is from Sir Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem, Charge of the Light Brigade. Yes, the the charge was based on bad intel, Mm -hmm. as they say, exactly. Um, And then the song in Kandahar is Wish It Was True by White Buffalo. The most nail-on-the-head song about a guy in the army being sent away by American forces and coming home to America not respecting them that I've ever heard. But I like the tune. The tune is really good. Yeah. But listen to the lyrics or read the lyrics and it is is nail-on-the-head type stuff. And then finally, we had The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. There was another book, Cyborgs and Barbie Dolls, Feminism, Popular Culture and the Post-Human Body by Kim Toffoletti. Um, whether there's any idea other than the technology around changing your um, physical self and obviously to the world of micro, who knows? Yeah, I just thought by the way Frank throws it away, it may be kind of a reference to Iron Man and the way that people enhance their bodies in the Marvel Universe. That's not something that Frank needs to do to take out his enemies. He's a character that carries guns, shoots them, carries knives, slashes people, kills them, uh, uses his fist to punch people out. Uh, He's not a person that's enhancing his body to accomplish his mission. So just might have been that reference. Couldn't get any other reference from the book. But it was a weird cover. I'll give it that. Definitely. So, gentlemen, I think that's all our notes. Am I right? Yep. So, I think what we'll have to do then is throw it over to young Sir Derek. Do you defend this third episode of The Punisher, Kandahar? I absolutely defend this episode of The Punisher. I like how it slowed it down a little bit, uh, just to get that relationship of Micro and of Frank side by side together, making sure they're on the same path. Some quite big revelations in here about the fact that the mission that Frank always thought he was on in the army wasn't a sanctioned mission. It was something that's in the control of somebody he doesn't know, and he's effectively been turned into an assassin by the army. Some people do say that about special forces teams, that that's effectively the kind of skills you come out with is, well, either you can go into assassination or you can not get a job when you come back from the army. Um, But they're effectively saying here that Frank was used as an instrument by somebody that wasn't the American government or the American people, which is not going to sit well with Frank. And as we see, he's now going to go out and kill every single one of them with the help of Micro. So, uh, so we're now into the mission. So from now on, that's, uh, that's going to be the plan for the series. It does take a couple of episodes to set these kind of things up, but this one I felt was balanced perfectly, uh, with the history of both Frank and Micro leading to this moment. Yeah. Really, really good. And John, do you defend the third episode of The Punisher, Kandahar? I do defend this episode of The Punisher. Um, I think this is my favorite so far uh, of the first three that we've watched. So, yes, early days. Um, but I would give this four naked men on a stool out of five. Wow. I don't know how they all fit on the same stool, but there's certainly four of them. Um, <laughs> yeah, I thought this was really nicely done. Uh, as I say, I was 
absolutely intrigued by Frank and Micro's relationship and how they would come together. And I really enjoyed the device whereby it was an interrogation from, uh, from Frank and the story, both Micro's as well as Frank's, uh, really comes spooling out of this. Um, I really enjoyed how Micro kind of turns the tables on Frank. You know, he does a job. He just does it differently from Frank. Um, more subtle, less violent, but it's still just as important. And I like the fact that, you know, Frank, whilst I think he is being portrayed in a more sympathetic way, you know, the, the varnish is coming off a bit. And I think that came off uh, certainly in his dealings with Micro and just by the challenge by Micro to say that, well, are you sure you didn't know what you were doing? You know, you killed people and this was murder and execution, whether it was sanctioned by the US or not in mm-hmm. that sense. So I really enjoyed that. Uh, I, I'm absolutely loving Billy Russo. It was nice to see him interact with Kurt and to get this sense that he is still... Yeah, very much a genuine guy here, uh, helping out the veterans circle. And then I think this little sub story, um, I think is really quite poignant with, with the former Marine Walcott and certainly the moment, um, where he almost shoots his father, yeah. uh, waking up from the nightmare. I think that's, I think it's a really interesting thing to include in a Marvel Netflix show that is seemingly both distinct from the show, but attached to this veteran veteran circle, to be honest. Uh, I think it's an interesting take, uh, and I'm really quite enjoying it at the moment. I want to see where that goes, or if it will, you know, how it will work within this show. And then finally, you know, we get a little bit more of Dina's story here, but I I think like Chris, I really want to see um, this get a bit more meat on, on the bone. It, it needs to kind of be taken out of the office a bit uh, and, and into sort of a full-on headlong collision into Frank Castle. Uh, I think that's what we need to see with this character now. So, yeah, four naked men on a stool out of five. So, Chris, are you going to shock us once again? What is your view of this episode of The Punisher? Do you defend Kandahar? Not literally, I mean, just like metaphorically. <laughs> metaphorically, I defend Kandahar. Unfortunately, I do not have the skill sets to physically defend it. Unless people were shocked by my usage of words and the vocabulary. That, if that could work. Anyway, uh, I do defend this episode. Um, I'm going to put it right out there. Um, as I, I was talking to my fellow defenders, uh, co-hosts before we started recording, I'm still on the fence about this show, but I'm willing, I'm so willing to give it the chance. Uh, I, I'm afraid I, I see where they're going with this. I, I am amazed by the cinematography and the direction and the script. Everything is great, but unfortunately I'm still not, I'm still not seeing the results of that it is quite slow i know they what i understand they are trying to set a tone set a story and set a pace for this show um but it's taking time to get there for example the dean of storyline is just there is no storyline there really pretty much she is a two-dimensional character um i want to see that fleshed out more um, she has yet to add that third 
element to it. Um, so if she becomes more than a character who's just about wanting to know why her, her partner was killed, then I'd be interested. Um, I know I sound quite down on it, but that is just because I came to expect so much. And is it delivering? Yes, it is delivering, just not as much as I wanted just yet, but I'm still willing to give it the try. So that's why I do defend it, because I think episodes one, two, and three set the stage for this show. If they continue to deliver, then I will start slipping more into the, oh my god, this was amazing. But at this point, it's just, I defend it, but just about. Because I can see, I believe I see where they are going with this. Um, they have the great, some great directors, some great scriptwriters, and some great actors. So they just need to tweak the story a bit and deliver upon what they are setting up. So I do defend, but gentlemen, there will be a, a, a time in this season where I either just give up and go, nope. That's it. I'm going to continue watching, but I just don't think this is worth it. Or I will go, yes, this is the point where it's flipped. This is the point where the hard work that they have laid down for X amount of episodes has come to pay off. There we go. Cool. Just want to point out, as we mentioned before, Chris is recording from New York City. Um, so if Chris doesn't turn up for an episode, it doesn't necessarily mean that he has given up on the show. We will tell you if Chris has no. been unable to record with us for an episode. So just in case. Uh, He's <laughs> not allowed to give up oh, on no, the no. show. Yes, exactly. Even if I say no, I, I just, by give up, I mean more like I think I Check resign out. to accept, I resign to acceptance that this is not a show for me, but I will still watch everyone and still comment on it. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Well, I'll give you an out, Chris. If you ever feel the show is getting like the Twin Peaks podcasts who were so disappointed in Twin Peaks that they recorded an hour long rant about how much they hated the Twin Peaks, the return every week. You are allowed, and you have my absolute <laughs> permission not to join us for future episodes. I'd much prefer that you have a happier life and an hour of your day or two hours of your days than have to watch and complain about a show that you don't like. No, and the one thing I will say is we as a Defenders TV podcast like to find the best. So while there are some, some mistakes sometimes, we will find and look at every aspect of the show and pull out some of the best parts of it. And that's what I will still always do, because... These guys have put the hard work. The actors, the directors, the writers, the producers have put a lot of hard work into this. And I can see the love, care and attention they put in. And just because I am critical of some of that does not mean I will not discuss it. I will not also bow down before the amazing work that they have done. I just think potentially sometimes I believe my own personal opinion. Maybe they may have done a slightly a different way, which would have made me happier. But so... Do not worry, I will not be a Debbie Downer or anything like that. But anyway, gentlemen, speaking of Debbie, um, I don't know why, but potentially Debbie might be in our feedback section. So let's go and jump over to our feedback section to see if there is a Debbie who has left any feedback. Excellent. And if you want to leave us any feedback, all you need to do is email us at feedback at DefendersTVPodcast.com or join us over on our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash groups slash DefendersTVPodcast. You can also follow us over on Twitter at DefendersCast if you want to follow along with our episodes. And of course, please head on over and subscribe to us on your podcast service of choice. Is it Apple? Is it Google? Or is it any other 
good or evil podcast catcher, please head on over, subscribe, rate us, leave a review, and of course, share the love of the podcast. Um, and you can go to DefendersTVPodcast.com and just click on the subscribe area of the homepage and that will take you to your podcast catcher of choice. So this is Derek jumping in here with a feedback section for this episode. Uh, unfortunately, the episode itself ended off being about three hours of recording because of some issues that we had. Chris living in New York at the moment uh, in his apartment uh, had some issues where there was a fire next door um, and had to uh, run around and make sure everything was okay. Uh, no issues at all. Everybody was fine. It was just a small fire that, that uh, brought the fire brigade. Uh, so he had that. Uh, and we had some bells that went off for about 20 minutes while recording. So we had to pause our recording. So uh, we recorded for three hours for this one hour episode. So we let the guys go and I'll uh, I'll take the feedback for this episode. So we got lots of feedback in from Ken Hugh for the first couple of episodes, which is really good. Thanks so much, Ken, for emailing us at feedback at DefendersTVPodcast.com with your thoughts. Uh, on Punisher episode two, he says, Hey guys, now that we've gotten Frank out of hiding in episode one, the main story of the season is getting going as I hoped. Here are some of my thoughts on episode two. At point one, glad to see that Micro is able to get the drop on Frank, proving he's not just going to be a weapon supplier for the Punisher. Pretty clear that Frank's team is the outfit that was present when Zubair was executed. The question is, was Frank the one who pulled the trigger? Karen makes her entrance into the show. I like her friendship with Frank, but I am worried that it may take a romantic turn, which will make her the inevitable damsel in distress. I've been avoiding reading too much about the show and did not know that they would be having Billy Russo character. Obviously, he's not exactly the same as his portrayal in the comics, but I can't help but think that the show will be using the old the hero's best friend turns out to be his greatest enemy trope. The question is, if and when will they have Billy disfigured in a fight with Frank? I'm thinking it will be in the last two episodes, setting up the villain for season two. Yeah, I think we're kind of on the same page as you can. Um, I think we may see a future villain in this character, but at this point, I'm hoping that we're going to see Billy Russo for the rest of the series. Ken's final point is, I really liked Frank's encounter with Wolf, who, who put up a better fight than I expected. Initially, I was put off by how sloppy Frank was, was in tying up Wolf and in how he holstered his weapon in his belt, but then was happy to see that it was all a ruse to get Wolf to talk after Wolf mentioned that information received through torture is unreliable. I guess Frank must watch a lot of action movies and know that the villain always monologues details about their evil plan when they're about to have the upper hand. Overall, I enjoyed the episode. I'm looking forward to seeing how Frank and Micro reach the point where they decide to team up. Yeah, thanks for that, Ken. Uh, yeah, I really like that. And again, I'm exactly the same as yourself. I really like that touch with uh, with Wolf where you think that Frank's just being pretty bad at his job, uh, but turns out he's he's playing him. Ken also sends some feedback on our podcast for episode two. He says, another great podcast episode. Enjoyed the commentary and speculations for episode two. Here are some of my thoughts. Interesting that you think the in intent of the Central Park Massacre was to send Frank a message by killing his family, but not him. What I took away, what Wolf revealed, is that they used the massacre as a way to misdirect the authorities so they wouldn't look too closely at the murder of a single person, in this case, Frank. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. We may have just, that may have just slipped, slipped our mind. Uh, some of the episodes of Daredevil season two are a little bit hazy at this point i suppose uh but yeah good good point uh ken says pretty sure that karen will be in future episodes since there's a scene from the trailer that shows frank and karen together after what seems to be an explosion yeah i know that she's in future episodes um i know that she comes back in later points uh, the guys haven't watched ahead and i don't think um chris has seen the trailer at least so yeah we were pretty sure that karen was going to come back and i know she is of course 
And Ken says, I never thought Micro's family was in any real danger, since I think one of the areas where the series has stuck pretty close to the comics is that the Punisher will never kill innocents, even though he may bluff doing so as a ploy. In the comics, Frank outright said that he would never kill an innocent during his crusade and would commit suicide. Thanks and keep up the great job. Uh, yeah, I agree with you, Ken. Definitely. I think the point we were trying to get across in that bit on the podcast was really about the fact that Micro doesn't know that about Punisher. He doesn't know that Frank will not kill an innocent. Uh, he was very clear when he met Karen the first time in the hospital back in Daredevil Season 2 that he doesn't kill innocents. He is methodically able to take out his target and his intended target and them only and avoid killing innocents. But Micro hasn't had that speech from him. So Micro may have been concerned that he, his family may have been in real danger. That's why he took the gun and drove to their house. But yeah, thanks so much for the feedback on the podcast episode. And thanks so much for listening to this. From our Facebook group over on episode three, Ronaldo says, I really liked this episode and the interplay between Frank and Micro. Great acting between the two of them. Tina Brown says, I really like the feel of these episodes, much different from the other series, feels more like a long movie and less episodic. There are so few supporting characters and only two real plots, Frank Micro and the Dinah stuff. The construction worker pal story seemed like it was just a setup and that's a good thing. Keeps the whole thing very tight and tense. I'm in total agreement with you, Tina. I'm really liking how they set this up. And now that we're three episodes into the series, we can now see that it's developing into one big plot uh, that hopefully we're going to see for the rest of the series. Thanks so much for that feedback Open over on the Facebook group. One final piece of feedback from Ken Hugh on episode three. Ken says, hey guys, just watched episode three and like where things are headed, although there are a few things I didn't like. Here are my thoughts and points. Firstly, while I liked the tension and the drama and the inter interaction between Frank and Micro, I did feel like it dragged at points and the encounter was extended to take up the entire episode. Why didn't Micro say right away, hey Frank, I was targeted by the same people behind the slaughter of your family and I can help you find them. Why didn't Frank threaten to kill Micro and to go after his family if he didn't disarm the booby trap or give Frank the password? Not that I would ever think that Frank would actually go after Micro's family, but he had already used that as a bluff on Micro previously. Yeah, Ken, I think Micro just thought he was smarter than Frank. I think he just thought um, he would be able to explain his situation to Frank. Because remember, this guy's been in hiding for a year because of what he knows. He thinks he'll be able to share it with Frank, show him exactly what he knows, and then get him on his side. I think Micro was trying to attract Frank's attention to come to him so that he could be a support. But if he called him up and told him all of this information straight off the bat, then Frank might have thought he was being drawn out of hiding, potentially. Ken goes on to say, I loved Frank's explanation that torture is not about pain, but about having time to realize you're going to die. Yeah, that is an absolutely great moment in the episode. Ken says, even more convinced that Billy is a villain, especially after Frank calling Billy the Butte. I'm guessing Billy was directly responsible for the slaughter at Central Park. Ooh, interesting point. Let's see how that one plays out. Um, Ken says, I love the nod to the comic that shows Frank is essentially one man army who saved his troop. I found myself slightly disappointed though by that action sequence. I like the headshots, which were realistic, but don't think the tight shots of Frank going through the building worked. Close-ups of Frank works when he's engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat, but when he's shooting, not seeing his target makes it look fake. I would have preferred POV sequence where we either see the sequence from Frank's POV or we're seeing Frank shooting from the POV of the soldiers being shot going from soldier to soldier. Despite the nitpicks, I still enjoyed the episode and I'm looking forward to Frank and Micro and how they work together. I like your choice there, POV. That's the name of a Punisher title, right? Punisher POV. Good choice there. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think in this case, I think they were trying to avoid the violence uh, in this episode. We mentioned very early on that there's going to be a lot of discussion about the show and its violence and how it presents it to people. I think they didn't want to glorify violence despite the show being very violent. I think they wanted to avoid 
the criticism, especially in a scene like this. So what we see in this scene with Frank's head and the movement and how the camera is moving in it, I feel what they're trying to go for is the emotional impact and on Frank and what it's doing to him rather than just showing gratuitous heads exploding, uh, people being killed and murdered. I think you're trying to see the effect on Frank rather than the damage he can cause potentially. You, you, that's still all in there. You can still absolutely see that this guy is a one-man army, but I think they wanted to avoid showing that blood and death on screen. They wanted to really see the impact, which seems to be a lot of what the show's about. Thanks so much for your points there, Ken, and everybody else that, that was in the feedback. I'll drop you over to the end of the podcast and the bells have stopped ringing and the fire has been put out. <laughs> Thanks. Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been great to be back with fellow defenders. We'll be back again next week with our review of episode four, Resupply, which will be out on Friday, the 1st of December. Yes, it's getting very chilly here now, uh, sat butt naked on a stool. So <laughs> thank you as always for listening uh, and we'll speak with you again next time. Thank you very much, guys, for listening and uh, I will see my fellow defenders very soon. Bye. Um, you know, he's obviously done this before with Kurt, where they've gone to Frank's ca- uh, cave. <laughs> where they've gone to... <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, that's really coming. What the hell? <laughs> oh, he's got the giggles. <laughs> I don't know where he's going. <laughs> great, great. You're saying uh, they've done this great. before. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. Five times today. On a Saturday? Why would they do that? <laughs>